Are we good? Can you hear me? We're good. I can hear you really good. Awesome. I eventually will figure this Zoom thing out. I still don't know how to work it. <laughs> well, to see me with my um, with my uh, uh, what is that? The uh, go-to meeting. I'm just now. Oh yeah. I definitely feel like I resonate with the older generations and technology because I do not understand how it works. That case, I can put my. I phone up against my thing because I had to order me a whole new um I ordered a battery first mm -hmm. from the computer and that wasn't the problem. It needed a new uh power cord. And so I ordered it and uh even with technology, it's still not gonna be here until uh uh I get it until Friday. So mm -hmm. I, my son's power cord so I can so I can, uh, there we go. So I can uh, um, do some of my stuff online because even if I do emails and stuff on my phone, it's not the same. So, oh, yeah, same. I'm the same way. You look so pretty this morning. For someone yeah. to say, you called me early. Yeah, we talked earlier because you didn't sleep very well last night and you look very well put together for not having slept very well. <laughs> I see that because I'm African American and my skin doesn't crinkle up. I <laughs> but, I'm gonna tell you, I haven't been dealing with depression um, mm -hmm. at all, but anxiety has been a beast. Girl, let me tell you. So yeah, I'll just go ahead and open it up. So this is another episode to Hard to Be Human, um, where I spend time with another person just having honest conversation about mental wellness um, and life in a pandemic. And today, I'm so excited to have you on. Um, this is my dear, 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 dear friend, Fonda Bryant, um, one of my heroes. Um, I look up to you. Um, I've been following everything that you've been doing. You, um, to me, you are the definition of what an advocate is. You, you are genuinely um, a, a person that gives from a deep place in your heart that um, feels so authentic and so genuine. And you can't help but feel that love when I'm around you. And how I met you, um, I met you through Mental Health America. I'm of the Central Carolinas. That's how I met you. Um, and uh, through training and stuff like that. And I actually took one of your training classes and I'll let you talk about that in a minute. Um, a couple months ago, uh, the QPR suicide prevention training why actually sitting in this chair <laughs> this is where i took it because we were in quarantine because there's a pandemic going on <laughs> yeah so i'll just kind of let you uh you're really really good at telling your story so i just want to kind of give you a space to to let everybody kind of know kind of give you a little little time to paraphrase what you've got going on with the mental health world well um you let me just tell everybody a little bit about myself yes i would love that 
I love it when you tell stories. They're my favorite. <laughs> I appreciate Jesse having me on. And as she said, she and I met um, at uh, Mental Health America. And in our, you know, when you're in the mental health circle, our circle is small, even though it's large to a certain extent, it's small because anytime you're doing an event or you're at a mental health event, you see the same people pretty much. So mm -hmm. I've seen you at, um, of course, Mental Health America. I've seen you at um, the uh, Are You Okay Charlotte? I've seen yes. you. I trained you in mental health first aid for you. And oh, yeah, of course, I forgot, yes. <laughs> in the QPR. So for me, um, like she was saying, what I do is from the heart. It's mm -hmm. um, very humbling um, and it's very near and dear to me because if it wasn't for my Aunt Kelly, my Aunt Spanky, uh, 25 years ago, who saved my life, I had no idea I was dealing with depression mm -hmm. because, again, in African American culture, We've mm. always thought it's a sign of weakness to pray about it, to give it to God. And again, I'm not mm. knocking, so don't get me wrong. Mm. But what I am, uh, what I am doing is letting people know um, that culture has a lot to do with mental health because how we were raised. You know, we've always been raised as a white person thing. So when you are experiencing it, you tend to not want to deal with it because again of how you've been raised. I couldn't. I didn't even know what was going on with me. I couldn't go to my mom. I just didn't right. know. So the depressions, uh, and at the time I had no idea I was dealing with depression. So 35 years old, working um, at Carolina's Medical Center as a pharmacist tech, uh, taking care of my son at 12. I thought I was doing pretty good. We had our own little place. Mm -hmm. um, didn't have a fancy car, but had a car to get to point A to point B. <laughs> and uh it started just, uh, the depression started sinking in then at 35, and um, it started taking a toll from uh, not being able to, um, just want to go to sleep, had no energy, physically, mm -hmm. mentally exhausted. Um, the thoughts started coming in my head that, you know, I already started feeling hopeless and worthless. And um, then uh, as far as I wasn't eating, and then when I would go to work, it took every bit of energy just to get dressed and to take care of my son at, at 12, help him with his schoolwork and feed him. That's okay. all I could do. And um, so it kept getting worse and worse. And then I started withdrawing. I wasn't talking to people. You know, I always tell people as an advocate, when people ask me, how do, I, how do, can you, how do you know if you're dealing with a mental health condition to just every day having a bad day or feeling right. anxious? And I always tell people, if it lasts for more than two weeks, if those symptoms, signs of depression or anxiety last for more than two weeks and it starts affecting your everyday life, you need to go to see someone. Yeah. And that's what happened. And it started affecting my everyday life. And so at the age of 35, you said, right. So did you have any issues with mental health or your brain or anything like that as a younger woman? Or is this something as an adult that kind of manifested? And that's kind of something really to kind of touch light on. We talk about mental health and these conditions and how they kind of start as you know as children and kind of work our way up but a lot of people don't realize that those symptoms and those things can manifest as adults you can be fine and then trauma you know can induce that um for me um i've never really struggled with depression i've always had anxiety but when i got sick my depression is surrounded by my chronic illness so i got that i never really experienced depression symptoms not wanting to get it out of bed you know not wanting to live uh, until I got sick in that way. So it's really important for people to realize that, you know, it can happen to anybody at any time. Doesn't matter what you look like, what color you are, how old you are, it affects everybody. 
Definitely. And that's the thing. When I look back on my life, Jesse, I truly believe that I was dealing with depression all my life. And to be quite honest, I've come to a realization that I shouldn't be here as an adult. Because when I look back at my life, and, and I'm not saying I had the hardest life as a child, but I had to start working at a very early age. My mother had me at 17, then she mm -hmm. had my Aaron at 19, and then she had my sister Valerie at 21, and we wow. lived with my mother. And uh, it was it was rough. I mean, she was good to us. She did what she could, but uh, my mom was very young. Um, she, you know, there was my alcohol, was too. Off, um, you know, things like that. So when you look back on your life, I realized that uh, I should, you know, it was signs that showed that not only was I dealing with depression at a young age, but so it was generational. It was generational. Oh, girl, generational trauma. That is something yeah, I've just recently, like really started getting into. I actually recorded a podcast with my friend Kelsey a few days ago and we talked about generational trauma. That, oh my gosh, that speaks so heavy to me. You carrying those stories and those feelings from your, your mother, from your grandmother, from these people before you, it impacts you so yeah. deeply. It shapes your it shapes your life and see mm -hmm. me, when you look back when I look back at some of the things that happened in my life at the time we didn't even know that was trauma it was just like okay you just go on and like when I was 16 and um, because the thing is I always tell people now I know and it's like when Wesley my son used to watch um, GI Joe the cartoon mm -hmm. at the end GI Joe would say knowing is half the battle so once you mm. know you can start correcting some things. And when I look back at my life, uh, and I'm always talking to people and I'll tell them, I said, you know, uh, addiction and self-medicating is not just about drugs and alcohol. It can be sex, it can be gambling, food. it can be food. porn, food. And for me, I started having sex way too early. Food and boys, boys for me too, yes. <laughs> I was trying to fill that void. My father was not in my life, he was a famous, mm singer and the only way I got to have any connection with him was looking on the cover of Jet magazine and reading stories and that hurt me because I was like why didn't he want me what does he mm. not have shoes if I have clothes does he even care and that really plays into a, a child's mind like what did I do I'm damaged right. why he doesn't want to be around me I didn't even think about my mother at the time all I thought about was I'm not worthy of my dad's love. He's, he loves other people, he doesn't love me. And that's what started that cycle of starting to mess with boys way too early <laughs> and got pregnant at 16. And when I had the baby, that was so traumatic because I had her in the floor of my um, oh apartment. Oh my. Yes, I did. She was, uh, I was- You are not human. You are a superhero alien. Oh, you no, are no, not I human. Was <laughs> it, was, it was, I was 16 and we were living in the projects in Gastonia. You're a and baby. Back, yeah, and back then the projects were totally different because you could get in trouble at the top of the hill and your mom was standing at the bottom of the hill with a switch when you got down there. It was, oh. very, it was very community. It was a very safe place, you know. Mm -hmm. When, um, you know, I got pregnant to a guy that was in high school. He was older than me and just a lot of stuff. And um, um, he wasn't there for me. So when I went to labor, I got up because uh, we lived in a two-story apartment and I got up and uh, I was in pain. I didn't even know I was in labor. I just went downstairs and I said, I'm gonna sit on the sofa for a little bit and I'll be better. And next thing I knew, the baby was coming and I had to wake up my mom and I was six months pregnant and the uh, paramedics delivered her. But the tragedy in that is, is that I suffered trauma uh, mm. too because 
uh, she only lived a month and every mm. day I'd go up to the hospital to, um, to feed her. You know, I would go up there every right. day. Oh my gosh. I was 16, my mom didn't go with me. And you I were a baby. Oh my gosh, my heart is like hurting for you. Something. And I would go up, go up to, the, to, the, to the NICU unit because she was born prematurely. And I had named her Rachel Michelle. And mm, I would go beautiful. to the, thank you. And I would go up there and I would feed her. And I would sit there all day till my mom came back to pick me up. And one day I was going up there and uh, the nurses, they were all looking really funny. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? And when I got up there, they told me she had passed away. And um, I was 16, remember. My mom called her and she didn't even come and get me right away. I had to stay up there all day until she came back to get me. And uh, I remember just crying and crying and crying. And I didn't know you could cry so much that you didn't have any tears. Well, again, I had suffered trauma. And instead of them, and, and I know, like I said, in my culture, uh, everybody doesn't, you know, they, they, they didn't know, like I said, so I'm not blaming her for not saying, okay, we got to get her to see a therapist or somebody. But at the end of the day, you're my mother and I suffered a great loss. And instead of telling me when I was crying, if mm. you don't quit crying, I'm going to take you and get you a shot to go to sleep. You should have been understanding my pain. And instead of understanding it, what happened was after we had the funeral, um, I went on back. That was during the summer when I had her. So then school started in August. So it, she just said, okay, you had the baby. She passed away. And not saying my mother wasn't sad about it, but I think in some ways she was relieved because I was 16 years old. She didn't have to worry about people saying, oh my God, you know, she's right. And sent me right on back to school like nothing had happened. And I had to swallow that pain. And to this day, because I'm from Gastonia, North Carolina, right next door, I have not been to that cemetery where my little girl is buried since I was 16 years old because the pain is just too great still. Wow. Too great. And, I, and everybody says I'm strong and put my best foot forward, but that is something that I still struggle with big time. And uh, one of my friends is like, well, you know, when this pandemic is over, I'm going to give you the money to get her headstone, which I want to do that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know when, if ever, I'm going to be ready to step foot in that cemetery because I think it, I don't know how I'm going to react. Even as, as strong what, as I am, I just don't know. Right. It, what do you think, what do you think is blocking you from that? If you feel comfortable talking about that, like, because for me, like I get really, I get really afraid in those kind of situations too. And, and, and not specifically with that, but like how, how, how do we take things like that when we're so afraid of them and we have such pain attached to them? How do we work through and how do we move through those things? I think what's going to have to happen for me is baby steps still. Mm. I know it's been um, 43 years, mm -hmm. but I think writing about it and the more I talk about it, the more I'm kind of working through it where I right. will be able to do that because I know it's something that, you know how they say sometimes you got to face your past. And Do you I feel think, like it's your fault? No, I just, I just feel like it was a product of the environment. Um, because at the time, see, I, and, and I, I'll say this, 16 years old, you're terrified. Mm. Part of being afraid to, because I didn't tell my mom, I'll tell you how it happened, how she found out I was pregnant. It wasn't that I told her. My uncle Marin, my great uncle Marin had passed away. And it's something how you can be like, it's like when there's a death, there's life. 
and we were out in the yard and I was turned sideways talking to someone and I had on a dress that had mm -hmm. a sash to it. It was a green dress. I would never forget this. And I had a sash that went through the middle. So, you mm -hmm. know, if you're pregnant and you're showing, if you tie something, it's going to kind of push that stomach out. Mm -hmm. And I uh, was turned to the side. And I think that's how they were able to see that, hey, wait a minute, something's going on here. Um, you know, she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified to tell my mom because my mother was struggling. She was a single parent. And you bring that disappointment. You bring that uh, shame. Uh, I know a lot of people don't think it's such a big deal to have a child outside of marriage. But I'm going to tell you something. That's some serious hard work. And mm -hmm. at old, you are not equipped to do that. No, you you're are not. Yourself. You don't know the first thing about being a parent. So no, myself, but I just feel like it was like these, these circumstances were set up in order for this, that, that to happen. And I, you know, I, I just, I don't blame anyone in particular, mm -hmm. but I just feel, feel this great sadness. And that's mm -hmm. why when I got pregnant again at 23, mm -hmm. I, I was so, uh, with my son, I just had this big hug around him where I was just so worried about him. Like he could, I just was too overly being overly motherly. Let's just gotcha. put it there, because of losing the other one. So, um, you know, I, it, it's just still a hard thing sometimes to deal with. And um, losing a losing a child in no matter what context, I, I, I've never lost a child, but I have lost a brother. Uh, my, my brother passed away five years ago unexpectedly in a really tragic accident. Um, and it, it, that kind of grief and that kind of loss, I mean, it, it will it'll stay with you forever and it's it's it, and i think that's it's it's something to do with grief like we don't have to get to a point where it's like we don't think about it we let it go get over it we get to a point where we accept that pain and we move through it like with my brother like i he he would uh longboard he was three okay so i'll tell you the story he was three months shy away from graduating with his biomedical engineering degree he was like a weekend away from like looking at houses with his wonderful girlfriend, Caitlin, who was a fam like her family and our families were families. So like we, they grew up together, they knew each other, they moved. It was like a love story for the ages. He finally got his head out of his ass. He was, he uh, lived in Arizona. So he was really into like that, um, the like rave desert scene kind of thing. Um, and so he got really into that and like doing ecstasy and like just sneaking out of the house and stuff. He finally got his life was like here, right? Like, here you go. Here's your life on a silver platter. You have a, a and a son too. He has a nephew, my nephew Quentin. So a son, a beautiful woman about to graduate a job, a house, and then he goes out skateboarding with his friends longboarding one Sunday and they did these huge mountain runs where they would go down. Um, and he went down and a truck crossed over the lane and took him under. And my, uh, I got a call cause he was in Arizona and I'm in North Carolina and they were like, Jesse, Brandon's been in an accident. Get on the first flight now. And it was right before like four or five years ago. Do you remember in Charlotte when we had that huge blizzard that like knocked everything out? Definitely. I got on the last flight, one of the last flights going out of the Charlotte airport during that blizzard. That was when that happened. It was like right before Valentine's day. And by the time I touched down, he was brain dead and he was gone. He ended up saving five people's lives and all this stuff. But that grief process, like losing him, I mean, 
I, I, and it's, it's people experience grief in so many different ways. And especially for my, my mom, like she, she's still dealing with that loss and that, uh, and it's something that I, uh, it, it affects her on her and in, in her daily life, like her grief moving through that. So it's not something that, you know, in four years, you're going to get over it or, you know, I mean, it's been, how long has it been for you since you've lost your daughter? 43 years. And I'm sure it feels just as fresh and new than it did, you know, on Sundays. And then some days I'm sure, you know, you can breathe and it, that feels a little less. And I think that's, you know, something we need to take with our feelings is that they come in waves and you're never going to get over that. We, we can't push our feelings out. We have to acknowledge them because we are human. We are brains. I was thinking about this this morning before we got on the call about how, you know, like when we're given a job, we're given a training manual. When you're given a new piece of equipment, you're given a training manual. You're given this, you're taught how to use this piece of equipment, right? Literally nobody teaches us how to use our brains. <laughs> we're yeah. just kind of like, here you go, here's some emotions. Like we feel grief, we feel pain, we feel anger, we feel, we, life is going to happen to us regardless. There will be tragedy, there will be loss, there will be pain. There's nothing that we can do about that. It is unavoidable. But how we react to it, how we heal from it, the things that we have taken from it, like, and, and I can speak from my experience with Brandon, he changed my life, losing him in, in such great ways. I would give anything to have my brother magically pop up here next to me, but the, 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 the zest that I have for life the, 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 the eyes that I see the world through, through his eyes too. Cause it's, I feel like I took his little eyes and I plucked them and I put them in my eyeball too. I was like, I'm going to, you can't do it. So I'm going to do it for you. And it's yeah. just how we, it's our, our perspective and, and how we take from it. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe someone will hear this story on this podcast about you speaking with that. And, and a 16 year old girl will feel a little less alone with a belly and a mom that doesn't understand what she's going through. Because I had yeah. the same similar experience with my mom. I never got pregnant, but my mom had me at 21. And then she was with really abusive guys um, that treated me and my brother like horrific crap. And my mom had no self-worth. So she let it happen. So I was like, why don't you love me, mom? You're letting all these people treat me like crap. And I had to realize like my mom was a baby when she had me. She never finished high school. My dad treated her like crap. Her dad treated her like crap nobody's ever acknowledged or loved her. Nobody's ever said like, you're, it's okay. Like, and I was like, well, how the heck is she supposed to do it for me? Nobody ever taught her. So it's, it's, it's having conversations like this and being open and vulnerable about our pain and our experiences and our trauma is how we can heal because it happens. We just don't talk about it. Exactly. And you know what? My mother, oh, she's a little bit different. Cause like I said, she had me I'm 17 and my mom has a very strong personality and unfortunately mm -hmm. as much as I love her she is not the person that I would go to if I'm in crisis and I'm okay mm -hmm. with that because she's very judgmental and my mom dealt with her own pain and the thing is I just and, and everybody's different and that in that generation like my mom is 75 so they were always taught just to suck it up or self-medicate mm -hmm. because when I look at my family history especially like I had a great uncle, Uncle Richard, who fought in the military. I forgot which war he was in. And every mm -hmm. time I met him as a child, he was always drunk. He was, you know, he, you could always smell alcohol on his breath. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a kid, you don't think anything about it because we're not thinking about the deeper issue. And mm -hmm. um, now 
looking back on that, I realized Uncle Richard was dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And not only that, just because of him being a black man at the um, age he was and the things that he saw due to racism and how uh, mm. African Americans were treated, um, a lot of people self-medicated, including my father, who uh, he ended up dying um, from a massive heart attack, but mm. it was still brought on by years of substance abuse. As a matter of mm. fact, he started as early as 15, and I'm not talking about smoking weed. They said he was smoking, uh, he was doing serious drugs. Yeah. So when we peel back the layers on our family history, you see the mental health issues, you see the substance right. abuse, you see the generational trauma. And that's why I'm determined moving forward. I have an eight-year-old grandson that his life will be where he can open up and share and talk and not be afraid of being uh, put down or looked down upon or get over it and suck it up, that kind of thing. And even with my son, you know, I didn't do um, everything correctly, which is we parents, we don't, but now not perfect. Forward, we're not perfect, but now moving forward, I know to let him speak, to express himself to yes. mental when I'm listening to him. I might not like what he always says, but at the end of the day, to be able to get out what you're feeling, it's like a breath of fresh air. You can feel the heaviness, even when I go to therapy sometimes, or talking to my Aunt Spanky, my Aunt Kelly, who saved my life. Mm -hmm. I had a situation the other day where I had to call her and she just listened. And it just, you could feel the anxiety just leaving my body by just her listening to me and not being judgmental. And that's a wonderful thing. So moving forward, I now feel like I had a tools in my toolbox and I'm always learning about new tools to put in that toolbox, but I'm determined to now to really move forward because I'm healthy now, Jess. Yeah. Or I, I tell people all the time when I'm, when I'm training, I said, you know, um, I wish I'd have had somebody like me when I was y'all's age, especially when I'm speaking to high school mm, students. Mm -hmm. I, I say said, that all the time. I do. And, it, and it's a wonderful thing because I didn't have that. And because I didn't have that, I made a lot, a lot of mistakes. And it was just like, why am I keep repeating these same cycles? And mm -hmm. it was only therapy and self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm so open and honest. You know, I, I talk to young girls and I tell them, I say, hey, I started having sex at 13. I was very promiscuous. And I said, I learned how to not do that kind of thing because it all connected back to the low self-esteem, um, you know, feeling worthy, all of that mm -hmm. stuff. Now, I, you know, I'm 50, 59 years old. I'll be 60 in November and I've never you look been great. Married. Are you shut up? I thought you were like in your 40s. Shut up. Oh my gosh, you look incredible. Thank you. Thank you. But it used to be, I felt like, hey, what's wrong with me? Why am I not married? But I'm okay with that now. And if mm -hmm. I meet, that's fine. You might be coming mm -hmm. to a wedding and I might be 75 when you see me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it might not happen. But either right. way, I'm finally okay with me. I'm fine. Oh. Okay. Be, the first friend you need to make is yourself. Exactly. You exactly. And that's so, so important. So can you talk about some of the tools that work specifically for you? Because everybody's different. So what's some stuff that you really like to do that like, that kind of got you to where you are now? What's some stuff that really, I know we talked a little bit about on the phone this morning, but let's talk about that. Well, some of the things that really helped me is number one is um, taking ownership of whatever accountability on. accountability yeah. you know Girl. <laughs> not to, and I, I tell you something else not to beat yourself up we're human so that's the first thing is to take accountability it used to be 
Uh, I know in my younger years, I blame other people. I didn't take Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? What did I do? What did I do wrong? Yes. Oh, girl. But now I take full responsibility. It might not always be hard to swallow. What can I learn from this? Yeah. What can I learn from this? You take things from it and you don't repeat. One of the things I learned from um, some, some bad behavior, um, being involved with people who were already involved with people because of my self-worth, is to realize that I deserve better. I deserve better. And I shouldn't settle. Mm. And that's what I used to do. I used to always just settle because I felt like I wasn't worthy of a good man. I wasn't worthy of a good relationship. I wasn't worthy. And that goes all the way back to my father. That goes mm. back to I felt like I wasn't even worthy of his love, even though it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. So that's one of the things. The other thing I do is, is that I try to just take one day at a time, just stay in the moment, stay in that lane. Because Especially I'm, right now. Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm thinking about the, tomorrow, uh, the next day, next week, next month, I can feel an anxiety going up. I can feel it. Just up. So I try to stay within the moment. I try to, when I feel uh, depression or anxiety really weighing heavy, and I know I can be snappy or say something that I shouldn't say that I'm a regret, I'll try to remove myself from the situation and mm. just go by myself. And just Because it's okay for you to be crabby. That's, that's something that yeah, I had to learn for myself. Like, it's totally cool for me to be bitchy <laughs> and crabby. I just need to take myself and remove myself and let me yeah. feel it and get it out, and then I'll come back. But it's fine yeah. if you feel that way. You just can't take it out on other people. It's yeah, totally I, fine to feel that. Yeah, you know, because I stay with my son and he's been wonderful too. But sometimes I can feel that where I don't want to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm not in a great mood. So what I try to do is, is just say, okay, I, I'm feeling this. If, even if I have to sit in the car. Or sometimes I come home from the gym and I'm not quite there yet mentally. So I'll sit mm-hmm. in the car a little bit and just uh, say, okay just sit here. So also one of the things I love to do, and you know this, I love hitting the gym. Mm-hmm. I'm a gym rat. I love coming out of there with the sweat and my hair looking terrible. Bad. And I got that <laughs> off the stomach. Uh-huh. We can't do that right now. We have to find other ways to still get those endorphins going. So for me, yes. trying to get out in nature and doing the walking, put my yes. music on. Music is a wonderful thing. Oh, music girl. Is a wonderful thing and just listening and then counting your blessings mm. counting your blessings because we tend to get a little bit complacent with that mm-hmm. right? gratitude got a place to live got food to eat we got um we're with people i want people we love we know we have people that care about us you we're sitting to- on these pieces of technology like having a conversation exactly you got to realize <laughs> long as you got even if it's just one person that cares about you that's one person that cares so mm-hmm. as long as you have a place to lay your head food to eat um laughter and that's something else too a good laugh oh yes laughter is laugh. such the best medicine <laughs> i love one of the best things even if you have to pull out some old movies and yeah and because I love old black and white movies too. Mm-hmm. Love old black and white movies, but just a good laugh. You know, I don't care if you've seen the movie fifty times over. If it's gonna make you laugh, like Rush Hour Two, last oh week. My. <laughs> <laughs> I love Rush Hour. I do too. I see it, 
and I love it. I laugh so hard with some of the stuff Chris Tucker says. Chris Tucker is hysterical. Him and Jackie Chan, their their comedic chemistry was surprisingly really good. <laughs> Put on a good movie, and I don't care if you've seen it 15 times and you can you can quote it verbatim. Just a great laugh because when I see Rush Hour. I know I'm going to end up with a great laugh and a smile on my face. And yes. sometimes uh, I have to have that heart-to-heart -heart talk with myself, you know. Yeah. I have to, you know, you have to talk to yourself sometimes because sometimes with, mental, with uh, anxiety, with depression, um, my therapist told me a long time ago I was very hard on myself. But sometimes you do have to reel yourself in. Mm -hmm. You have to reel mm -hmm. yourself in. And that's yes. something. You know, I just try to, and then... Again, when uh, you know, I've been teaching teaching a QPR suicide prevention training, which has been so inspirational. Yes, I want to talk on that, touch um, on that really quick. So you have been since we've all been trapped inside. Um, you have taken QPR suicide prevention training online, completely virtual. Basically, as soon as they were like, stay inside, you were like, hey, come train with me, um, which is why I admire you so much because you just don't stop. You don't do it for like, because it's May and it's Mental Health Awareness Month. Like this is your life and this is what you live. So you have done suicide prevention training. How many people have you trained since we've been in quarantine? Oh man, you were my, in my first class. And that was I know. Class. We were all going through go-to meeting and trying to figure out things. <laughs> uh, starting on March 26, 2020. And it has blown, uh, um, blown up to, I have now trained 452 people. From 452 people? Today. Ah! 20 states and four countries. Yes, I've had a woman from Bulgaria take the training. Uh, England, Mexico, and the Philippines, and it has been it has been quite the journey, and it has been so much of a journey that it has inspired me to write a book. It has yes. to that where it's time to write it. But not only that, I'm going to take all the emails, all the social media messages, and text messages, and I'm going to compile them in the book because yes. people need to really see and read what people are saying, what people are going through, what people are that come to work with you every day and smile in your face and they go home and they're in pain or they're working all day long and yet they're in pain. People need to realize these are not isolated incidents what people are going through right now. These are what most people are. One out of five adults, one out of five children have a mental health condition. So in this pandemic, Everybody has post-traumatic stress disorder. If you if you really want to be realistic about oh, it, oh, hundred percent, it's global trauma. Not a global single trauma. person on this planet is not affected by this right now. It's global. You know, when it came when we first heard about it in Washington State, everybody was like, "Yeah, you know, that's terrible. People are dying. You know, that's terrible." Even if we knew that we were going to have cases in North Carolina and Florida and California. We had no idea that it was going to shut down the whole entire state where we couldn't go to the gyms, we couldn't go to bars, we couldn't, you know, go into grocery stores, no toilet right. paper. We're still trying to figure that piece out. But, <laughs> you know, everybody's like, but, you know, it, we never saw that coming. So it was like we were walking one day and somebody mm -hmm. took the rug out from under us and we're like, what happened? And so, it just shows us how unstable and how much of in a crisis we were already in. Because yes. it took like literally four and a half hours for the entire country to fall apart. Exactly. <laughs> what I'm telling people too, mental health and suicide, we, we were in crisis long before the coronavirus with those two. Yes. We're 
emphasis now with suicide, especially because we're in the peak of it. People think it's always around Christmas and, and the winter months, but no, we're in the peak of it now. So you throw in the coronavirus, you throw in the isolation, you throw in the uncertainty, and you mm -hmm. throw in the that we can't hug each other or be around our family and the uncertainty of our government and you know all these crazy storms and earthquakes yeah. and or let's not forget about the blood what are the blood wasps the, the blood wasps thing yeah, yeah. what is that yes what is that is that gonna be next well <laughs> so, I mean what's gonna be next so you put all that together and you have a cocktail for disaster and for the suicide rates to continue to soar. So when I started training, I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna train as many people as I can because the more people we train, the more people can get out here and save somebody's life because after this, whatever normal is gonna be for us moving forward and nothing is ever gonna be the same. Right. Um, we're gonna see people that are in crisis. We're gonna see where you might help a total stranger who might be suicidal. On college campuses, it's going to be where kids are going to, young people that I've trained are going to have to use that training to save, to save someone. It yeah. is, the training is invaluable. It's invaluable. Oh, 100%. Yes. And, so and, and, yeah, and not even for, uh, you know, for helping other people. I even told you this. I took that training class that day because I needed to hear those things. Yeah. So, you know, that, because I feel like when people hear mental health training, they get really intimidated because they're like, what do you mean? I have to like talk to people all the time and like talk about their feelings and stuff. Like what? I'm not prepared for that. Ugh. It's whatever you want it to be, whatever you need. I took your class solely because I needed to hear those things because I have an autoimmune disease and I have no idea when I'm going to be around people again. And that was like a really crappy headspace for me to be in. I sat literally right out there. I have, I have a porch that has like a balcony and I was like, well, good for you. And you know something, that is a point because one of the things about my training, I could go straight through the PowerPoint and just read the PowerPoint, but that's not mm -hmm. me. I wanted people, I wanted people to really know that there's hope. I wanted people to really know that this, the, the whole foundation of the training is about empathy, compassion, and kindness, which is not all equated to the suicide prevention training. We should be there. You know, I'm hearing all this, you know, um, together and uh, compassion and empathy and stuff. We should have been doing that because that's how I was raised. I was raised at a very early age to have kindness for other people, compassion for other people, empathy for other mm -hmm. people. I've always lived by that. And I'm not saying I'm 100% and always, you know, have always been, you know, nice to everyone. But I do really live by that golden rule of treating people like you would like to be treated. Because mm -hmm. I've noticed that it's plenty of people that you think, um, you know, you look at them and they're just smiling or they got, you know, supposedly they got a, I hate when people say perfect life because nothing's perfect. Oh, I know. Robin Williams. I always oh, think about Robin Williams. Yes, you know, the perfect life. And it's not perfect. And that's one of the things with the training that I, I teach too. And this is just in life, not even, you know, I use it as part of the training, but it's not training, it's life. Where don't judge people and think, oh man, they got a great car, they got a nice job, they got beautiful children, they're a student athlete, they're starred, you know, they're a great student in college. They don't have 4,000 million followers on Instagram. Exactly. Don't assume mm -hmm. because the, that, that on the outside looks great people aren't struggling on the inside. And there's plenty of people that I've met that um, have told me, they've taken me to the side like student athletes. And they've told me, hey, Ms. Fonda, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. 
And so don't assume because people have what you think they got a good life on the outside that people that they can't be struggling because I tell people all the time, it's many days that I go to that gym and I'll go in there and everybody's saying, Hey Fonda, how are you doing today? And I'll say, I'm fine, but I'm not fine. You'll smile and to get yeah. that face so people won't ask you what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's a very hard thing to do. So I wanna create a world where someone says, How are you, Jesse? And if I'm not okay, I can say, I'm having a really shitty day. And then that person, <laughs> without any provocation, goes, I'm here for you, Jesse. You know what I mean? Like it's it's we we're expected to be these like robots and to just like lit we like uh, we we have to fight tooth and nail for our basic physical needs to be met as humans are the you know food shelter you know that sort of things we have to fight so hard to do that that we spend all of our brain power on those physical needs because we need money for those because it's a physical thing that we have no time to spend on our brains and taking care of ourselves and i think that creating a world where it's okay for an African-American person to have a mental health, you know, illness. It's okay for a football star to have chronic anxiety. It's okay for these people who we put on, you know, th that we don't understand. It's okay. It, it happens to everybody. Exactly. And that's one thing I keep pushing to people is that it can happen to anyone. And when Chief Putney has me speaking to the rookie officers, the CMPD, I always go in there and I'm dressed up and have my heels on. Mm -hmm. And the first I asked the rookie officers is how many y'all would know from looking at me I have depression and they're all shaking their heads mm -hmm. and then ask them is how many y'all would know because of my depression I almost died by suicide 25 years ago and they're all shaking their head and, and the next thing I tell them is uh, I go around the room and I'll count off and I say every fifth person stand up and when every fifth person is standing up I said this is how many people in this room that could be dealing with a mental health condition and you don't even know it so i said just like you didn't know i had uh i have depression you have no idea who you're standing around who has mm -hmm. a mental health condition and when we're throwing words around like crazy nuts psycho mm. it's cry baby job, cry baby suck it up get over it um violent i said guess what those words hurt they're like hammers they're hammers and they don't go away that easily they don't they stick with you and you might have been on the verge of going to get some help and you're mm -hmm. like, wait, is that how, is that how they, they think of us? Is that how they look at us? Right. They, why people don't go and get the, get the help that they need. And I am very, uh, very um, uh, protective of when I hear people sitting up saying those words, because I'll Ooh, ask me them, too. crazy. What, mm -hmm. what is crazy? What, what does mean? that look like? You know, mm -hmm. but what it is is a lot of people think that people with mental health issues are the people that walk on the streets and they don't realize that if they got help, a lot of them could be okay too. And one 100%. of my hundred percent exactly one of my favorite stories I read in the Washington Post several years ago, and I, I would love to meet this man one day. His name was Alfred Costell. He was an African American male and he was living on the streets in Washington, DC, and he got arrested for sleeping in uh, buildings and you know, he got arrested. So when they took him to court, uh, they asked him, they said, uh, who's going to represent you? And he said, I'm gonna represent myself. I'm an attorney and everybody's like, yeah, right. Well, come to find out he had three degrees, 
economic degree, accounting degree, and he had graduated from Harvard Law School. Mm. He was more educated than a lot of people that walked by mm, him. Don't judge a book. Don't <laughs> uh, he had won a lot of awards. He had gone to school, uh, law school at uh, John Roberts, one of his uh, Supreme Court justices. Even the judge on the bench recognized him once he started talking. But what happened was, as I, when I did a speech down at Clemson, I said he did not take care of his mental health and it didn't take care of him. He, mm. he had schizophrenia and he didn't get to help. So one of the things I always try to do, and I learned this the hard way when I went into psychiatric hospital is when the therapist asked me, she said, Fonda, who do you put first? And I said, my son, he's 12. Mm. And that wrong answer, she said, when that bag drops on your face, what are you supposed to do? Put it on first. your face first so you can help someone else. Now, that's a lot easier said than done, especially when you have low self-esteem and mm -hmm. you don't feel like you matter. But once I did, that light bulb went off and I flipped the script and I really started loving Fonda Bryant for who she was. Yes. That's when they started training, uh, changing. Change. So again, I put me first so I can turn around and help other people. And if I had to give one piece of advice, that's what I would let people know. You yes. have to first because on Valentine's Day 1995 when I almost took my own life I was not I couldn't help myself I couldn't help my son I couldn't help anyone so I tell people put yourself first not in a selfish way where it's me 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 right but it's me where you say okay I gotta yes. take care of so I can help other people including myself and that's I think that's the biggest piece of advice I would give to people make yes. sure Care is not selfish. It's mandatory. No, you cannot pour from an empty cup. You cannot. You cannot. And that's something I learned through my healing. When I started really loving into myself, really started healing from the inside, I kept pouring from my cup, like, love me, love me, please love me. Here's my cup. Love me, please. Uh, I started just pouring into my cup. Now my cup is overflowing. And now all that excess goes to other people. And I don't feel it missing because I'm already fulfilled. And that's how I feel. You know, anytime I can help someone out of that darkness, anytime I can help someone who's hurting, um, it re-energizes me. And, and I think that's the thing is like us filling up our uh, gas tank. It's mm -hmm. like it makes you um, feel better about things. The more that we help others and it's like it just rejuvenates you and you uh -huh. just get better and better oh, with what you're doing. So I'm very proud of all the things that I've done, but I know it's more work out here because it's more people that need our help. There is so much more work to be done. Uh, and this is a great place for us to kind of stop and wrap it up. But I just want to say, Fonda, I am so happy that you are still here. I am <laughs> so happy that um, that you use your gift for, for like Mr. Rogers would be super proud of you. Um, you like, like that, like, that's what I, I'm like, what I, I don't think like, what would Jesus do? I th I say, what would Mr. Rogers do? Um, and you are, you are a beacon of hope. Um, you're someone to look up to, uh, and you genuinely make the world a better place. And I cannot wait to see what you do individually. I do individually. And that what we do as a team to like totally kick mental health illness ass. Hey, you know something? T-shirt, by the way. Do what? Because you're very creative. I've seen some of the stuff, and, and I just want to say to you too, I'm very proud of you. And look at the road that you've traveled. And hey, sometimes the road is still going to be bumpy for us, but as oh, long girl. as hope 
we're going to get through it. And as long as we have each other. So we're going to do, I'm very proud of you. I see the stuff that you're doing to make the world a better place. And to just let people know, Hey, it's people out here to care and understand. Mm -hmm. And that makes a big difference. So I'm looking forward to it. And Hey, I already think it's going to be a great t-shirt, by the way, what you just got finished saying. Yes, absolutely. I would. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I will put all of the links to, your stuff, you know, in this. So if anybody wants to follow your story and kind of what you're doing, those links will be available. And um, if uh, you're going to be on here again, we're going to talk more. There's still like so many things I want to talk to you about, but I was like, I'm trying to keep these short and it's so hard because <laughs> I just love to talk. <laughs> so I really commend you for what we're doing because even if one person hears us today and we give them hope or we- uh, You have given me hope. Even if this didn't record again, like somehow I keep doing, uh, well, I, I yeah, have gotten some work that you're doing and don't ever count yourself short because some, you know, as long as we help one person, that's one person a day that we help. So mm-hmm. I'm just really proud of what I do. I'm very humbled by it. And above all else, I'm thankful to my Aunt Kelly who heard, who listened to me. We that love day. Aunt Kelly. Uh, well, I'll make sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we love Aunt Kelly. Well, this um, has been another episode of Hard to Be Human. And thank you so much for being here with me. I really appreciate you. Thank you. 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 you too. <laughs> Night. Goodbye. Good day. Good morning. Why do I do this? Hello out there. This is hard to be human.